you know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. If you hear some emotion in my voice on the front side of this episode, it's because you're going to hear a lot of it throughout this episode. Frequently, we begin with the words, man, buckle up and get ready for the ride. Well, listen, people, buckle up and get ready for this ride. Here we go. Country music star Granger Smith is known for his chart-topping hits that include Backroad Song. It's a great song. And happens like that. And yet, and yet on a sunny, gorgeous June day in 2019, Granger suddenly faces a devastating loss, not on the stage, but off. While outside his beautiful home, playing with his three children, Granger's youngest son, three-year-old little guy named River, he wanders off. Moments later, and it only takes a moment, moments later, Granger finds little River face down in their swimming pool unconscious. Although they're able to revive his heart, the oxygen deprivation damages Little River's brain beyond hope. Soon after burying his youngest son, images of this tragedy haunt Granger as he faces debilitating parenting guilt. Why wasn't he there for his son, he wondered. Although he finds himself in a dark pit of grief, that's not where the story ends. That's not why we're doing this episode today. That's not why this is worthy of listening to. You see, Granger's going to join us today to share how he found himself caught in a runaway river of guilt that he could not escape and how he discovered the purpose of his suffering. You ready for it? To bring comfort, to bring hope, to bring encouragement to anyone who has ever suffered. That includes me. This conversation with Granger blew me away. And it includes you. If you've ever gone through a hard time, if you've ever lost someone you loved, if you've ever experienced guilt or trauma or loss, this conversation today is for you. Through Granger's vulnerability, we are reminded that life's journey is not meant to be traversed alone or easily. And that in surrender, we can find the grace to navigate even the most challenging circumstances, even the most profound losses. My friends, if you are seeking a remarkable story of surrender, of redemption, and of the enduring power of faith, hope, and love, this conversation, the one you're about to hear, is for you. So here's what we're going to do. Buckle up. Get ready for a ride of a lifetime as I bring on my friend, soon to be yours. His name is Granger Smith. Granger, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Man, thank you so much for having me. I always wish the audience could have parted with us a few minutes earlier before we took the stage together because they would have, 
I think, figured out a little bit, not only around our common language, our friendship already, but your heart. So for those who don't know your heart and your story and your bio, and you have an opportunity of introducing yourself to this new audience, how would you introduce yourself? Man, that's such a great question because I'm in this transition period right now of uh, career transitions. And I have often asked that, that question in my life. It's like, am I a, just a country singer? Am I a songwriter? Maybe I'm a singer songwriter, or maybe I'm a performer. Maybe I'm a YouTube influencer, <laughs> you know, uh, maybe I am as, as of lately, maybe I'm a public speaker. No, cross that out. Maybe we should put preacher. No, maybe that's too harsh of a word for someone that doesn't understand it. Maybe I'm an actor. No, I'm probably not good enough to call myself that. Maybe, maybe I'm an author. Well, that's to be seen if that's going to, if that's going to be worth anything out of me or not. So I am definitely in a, in a transition where right now where I say I'm a husband, father, and a servant of the Lord. Well, husband, father, and servant of the Lord, an actor, <laughs> author, singer, songwriter, YouTube star, and friend. We're grateful that you're part of our, uh, our Live Inspire community today. You have so many stories and lessons and successes and tragedies and lessons learned to share. But I'm going to start at the beginning, man. I think that's, you know, scripturally a pretty good place to start and probably in our lives also a pretty good place to start. So let's go way back in time. I believe your birthday is September 4, 1979. Is that accurate? That's That's accurate. Dallas, Texas, baby. So let's go all the way back to Dallas, Texas, September 4, 1979. Talk about your family of origin. Yeah, I was uh, a purebred Texan, actually a purebred Smith. Ironically, my mother uh, is her family. They're Smiths. So my mother and father, both Smiths, moved from College Station, Texas to Dallas for my dad to start a business with his brother. And faithful parents raised in a what we would say a Christian home, two younger brothers, Parker and Tyler, who I still currently work with after all these years, which is, that's a miracle in itself to work with, <laughs> be able to work with family. I played high school football in Texas, which is the thing to do. That's what we do is text and, and learned uh, a, a lot of what you summed up with success and tragedy and failure and victory. You know, that's, that was summed up really in, in high school football for me. Mm. When did you set the, the football down and pick up the guitar? They coexisted for a while as a teenager. I'd started playing guitar at 14. And that started when I could remember a, a moment when I liked this girl in the eighth grade. And she didn't really like me, or at least it wasn't said. We, we didn't talk about it. But I remember her saying, I wish more guys could sing and play guitar like Peter. That was another guy in her class. And I thought, okay, that's my end. You know, that's, if I could learn that, then she will really like me. I went home and there was a guitar in my closet from my grandmother that she had left and she had given up on it. And in that guitar case were tabs that showed you where to make chords, how to make chords. And I was dead set on learning that guitar, but The interesting thing that happened quickly was I fell in love with the guitar and became very passionate about it. 
uh, so much so that I forgot about the girl mm. <laughs> at the time. <laughs> yeah. And you ultimately went on to A&M? Yeah. So I uh, started singing a little bit more, a little bit more, and ultimately went to A&M when I was 18. And that's where my dad went. And that's also where seven of my high school friends went. And we all went into the Corps of Cadets together. A lot of our listeners won't, our viewers won't know what that is. What is a Corps Cadet of Texas sure, A&M? Sure. Uh, Texas A&M used to be a military academy. So the, the remnant of that military academy, when they opened it up to all students, is called the Corps of Cadets. So it's a form of a military academy where you live on campus, in dorms, you wear uniform. It's all four branches of the military and you're, you drill, a lot of them will go in, into a contract with the military after college, and that serves as their academy. You did not, because you still had that guitar wrapped around your neck, and uh, <laughs> That's the exactly music right. got you, man, but you didn't wait to graduate to uh, keep strumming it forward. When were you discovered, if that's the right term? Yeah, it probably is the right term, and I, I was playing my sophomore year in the core. I was I was had a little band and we were playing in College Station and I came up with an album and <clears throat> there were some people that heard about me and passed the word. Somehow it got to Nashville with this little album and some people flew down from Nashville to this this little bar I was playing and it was just packed with core cadets kids and their girlfriends. I ended up signing a publishing deal to write songs for EMI Nashville in about the year 2000. It was a great gift that my parents gave me to give me their blessing to do this, leaving college halfway through and giving me their absolute blessing to go. I ended up going and finishing at A&M later, but they didn't know that and they, they couldn't have known that. And that's just a great gift that a parent could give to, to say he loves this. Mm. He's passionate about this. And we have reasonable belief that he's got a good shot at actually making a living at this because we, you know, the, the publishing deal and they were legit people and a good company. So they gave me their full blessing to move to Nashville by myself. Didn't know a single person in the state of Tennessee besides the guy that signed me to the <laughs> publishing deal. So I went there, started a friend group, which I think having a community is, is just so important. I probably wouldn't have survived without a community and was able to play the songs that I was writing. Mm to that small community of people and that became my little support group. When did you realize as a 19 year old or 20 or maybe it took a few more years that this gift would actually be used, man, that not only were you talented, but this actually would allow you to become successful in music. Hmm. I think I believed that and wanted that and desired that ahead of yeah, sure. The realization that it could actually happen, if that makes sense. I wanted it. I dreamed about it. I desired it. I had a huge passion for it. And that was stronger than the reality, the rationale that maybe it wouldn't work at all. And I would be working construction or something, trying to figure out a way to make a living. I just truly believed it. And I truly loved it. I, I really did love it. And it wasn't until... 2004, when I had a strong desire to move to Texas to play the songs that I'd been writing with a real band 
for a real audience. And that might sound strange to some people, but in Nashville, at least it was back then and probably still is today. It's a lot of cover songs. And I was playing downtown on the Broadway street and I was playing three nights a week and playing four hour sets, all cover songs for tips. And it wasn't fulfilling in any kind of creative way at all. So I started slowly desiring to leave Nashville, go back to Texas, finish uh, my degree at Texas A&M, and in that town, rekindle the band Mm. and start playing in the same places that I was playing before I got the publishing deal, but now armed with knowledge of uh, the craft of songwriting and a bunch of demos that I could put together to make albums with. Tell me the first time that you went to a different city and started singing a song and you realize, oh my gosh, they're singing the song back to me. <laughs> and I don't mean like yeah. the Garth Brooks cover, George Strait cover. Yeah, 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 yeah. singing a Granger Smith song back to you in real time. So there, there might've been pockets of that happening in places where people knew me, but I've, I think probably your question could also include the idea of people that didn't know you personally. They weren't your friends. Yeah, right. That's not your mom and dad. (laughs) Yeah, they're not your mom and dad. They're not your friends' friends. You didn't invite them to the event. I don't know if there was an exact moment that I can remember, but I do, I can tell you it was very, very slow in that process. It was years of playing in Texas. And the, the beauty of country music itself, the genre, is that a, a nobody band could get plugged into a dance hall that just needs a band on a Friday night for people to dance to. Um, and that doesn't happen in the rock world. You only play a rock club and you have people that only know who you are on a Monday night or whatever. But a country band can go into a dance hall and people just dance regardless of who's singing as long as it has a good beat. So I did a lot of that. Um, with people not knowing who I was. And I moved back in 04. It probably wasn't until at least 2008, four years in, where there might have been a couple people that would come to the show knowing it was me and expecting a few of the songs off the albums. And that would be generous to say that four years later. I remember the first time, and I believe it was in San Angelo, Texas, that we walked out onto the stage at the beginning of the show and there were two people standing at the front of the stage waiting for us. <laughs> and I thought, what are those people doing? You know, they're not at a, at a booth. They're not at the countertop. They're not at a table and they're not dancing. They're standing here. Oh, this is interesting, you know? Then I remember it was three people. And then one day it was six people. I could remember telling the band during sometime at that point, how's it look out there? And they would we would judge it by how many rows of the front people were. So it's, well, it's like three, three rows deep at the, at the stage. Wow, okay, it's really good. Yeah, so that, that was a very slow process. Well, the rows grew. This is sort of the song, sort of the time on the radio. I think 11 albums in total, is that accurate? That's right. Uh, and we could go through individual songs. I, I think probably the song Don't Listen to the Radio is what I'd like to focus on, less for the music and more for the video. Yeah, it seems like this was a song that, uh, you know, it's a turning point in your life, not for what it does for you professionally, though it was well received. It's what it did for you personally. 
Yeah, I don't play it often, but I did play it the other night recently. And I told the crowd, I said, I made more off of this song <laughs> than any other song combined times a thousand. This song is more valuable. And, and everyone kind of perks up like, yeah. oh, okay, this is interesting. What's he about to play? I said, because this song in the music video is where I met my wife, Amber. So, to, you know, O'Leary has to prepare for his guests. I mean, I got to listen to all your music, watch all the videos, watch that one. And uh, sometimes you can tell it's acting. Other times it just looks real. Watching that video, the two of you look real. So I'm curious, was, was there a spark or uh, was that just the beginning of what he eventually turned into a spark? Yeah, I, I truly would say that I believe that there was a spark and I believe that she felt the same way and she had a boyfriend. I believe it, they were pretty new, but they were kind of serious. And I remember her friend, Christine, who stood currently still to this day, a dear friend of ours, and she was with her. She was like her, her escort, you know, she said, yeah, Amber, she's dating this guy and he's, he's just a great guy. And, and hopefully they'll get married one day and have babies. And I just remember thinking, well, there goes that one. That's not ever going to happen, but because I remember feeling the spark. Um, but that, that was interesting because we had this great day. We had this music video shoot. Um, <laughs> she, she was just a, so fun to hang around. And we had so much that we laughed about and had in common off camera. And the next day she texted me and said, how's the edit going? I was like, oh, that's interesting. So it's not just gone. She's not gone. She's still kind of on the hook a little bit. She said, how's the edit going? And I said, well, I haven't seen any of the footage yet, um, but I'm going to go over there this afternoon and I'm, I'm hopeful that it's going to be great. It's going to be a great edit. And, and she said, okay, good. We'll keep me informed and messaged a few more times before she said, Hey, can I tell you something? Yeah. I just, I want to know from you if you felt anything more than just friends, because I did. And I wanted to get that out of there. Just say it. But, but if you don't feel the same way, I'll just, I'll forget it even happened. And I don't want to make it awkward. And I said, well, <laughs> and I was whole, I was completely restraining myself, but I said, yeah, actually I did. But what this says, what this conversation says more than anything is you need to break up with the boyfriend because whether you like me or not, it's already saying that you don't like him enough. Mm. So you should probably break up with him. And then when you do call me and we'll go grab coffee. And so she said, okay, that was the deal. And it, it was right, right around Valentine's day, which makes it really awkward. But, uh, it was probably about three weeks that went by and she, and then she texted me or called me and said, I'm single. I'd love to love to get that coffee. If it's still on the table. And I said, yes. And I drove to meet her. She was in Fort Worth and we had uh, Starbucks. I had a little gig around there and I played the gig and then met her at Starbucks and we closed the place down until they're putting the chairs up on the tables and uh, said goodbye. And, talked all the way. I drove all the way back to college station talking on the phone. And that was, it never ended after that. So Granger Smith has fans all over the world that love his work and his music. There is one though, uh, hater in Fort Worth, Texas, somewhere, some man who was dating happily <laughs> the beautiful Amber. And, uh, and then that relationship ended at a Starbucks. 
Amber's beautiful. In addition to her physical beauty, what, what was it about this lady that just set her apart? Amber is probably the most selfless person that I know, almost to a fault. Like it, it, I feel like sometimes it hurts her because she serves too much and it's at her detriment of sleep or sanity. <laughs> and I just am always blown away by the fact that she can um, serve and serve and serve and serve and give and give and give and open herself up. And most of the time I'm saying, babe, you can't, you can't make everybody happy. You can't uh, respond to every direct message on Instagram of someone that is hurting or lost or needs help. You can't respond to everyone, but she tries, she tries to, uh, and she's always been like that, but that's just always been so surprising. It still is, even after all these years, surprising to me that she's so selfless and um, man, what an incredible trait for, for a wife. You marry 2010, you go on tour, you have a baby, you go back on tour, you have another baby, you go back on tour, you have your third baby, a little Riv, we'll talk more about him in a moment. You go back on tour. What's the biggest challenge as a, you know, you're still a son, you are still a husband, you're a father of three, you got a busy life and a million places to be. What's the biggest mm -hmm. challenge that we're even unaware of that a music star faces on the road while trying to do all the things of life? It was when the kids were little, they didn't know me very well. And when we were really busy and that is, that's hard in a lot of ways. And, and what I would justify it by saying, well, when they get older, I'll matter more to them. But when they're young, they just want mama anyway. I remember my daughter, London, she's, she's about to turn 12 now. And one time she was really upset with me when she was about two or three, probably three, because I was telling her whatever she needed to go to bed or brush her teeth or whatever it might've been. And she said, daddy, go back to the airport. You know, as if that's where I really lived was the airport. And it hurt me. I, I, I understood it wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't devastated over that, but, but I, it did put it in perspective that uh, I need to be as present as I can around her and around these kids. Because when I am home, I, it, th that's great. I might be home for three days in a row, um, but I can't be on my phone or my screen or, or watching TV. Or I, I need to be present with them so that I could uh, be the father that they need me to be. Now, I will say, to, to continue that conversation, London is now almost 12 and we are just, so close you know she was with me the last uh, 10 days on the road and she is just an amazing girl and loves me and I love her and, and we actually watched some of those old videos when she's two or three and she goes she said the other day daddy I'm so sorry I treated you like that <laughs> so so that is the end result of me continuing to pursue her for over a decade but that's how it started so you're pursuing her and her siblings and her mama and your career, and it's no longer one or two or three rows. It's arenas, man. And they're packed and they're singing back your songs. Mm. Life is awesome. Uh, you mm. buy 10 acres. You buy a gorgeous house. It's your forever house. Talk about that momentary chapter in your life. What, what, what did you guys have at that moment? 
Yeah, things were really good. Things were good in 2017, 18, 19. I just remember thinking of all the years of those days when no one was coming to the shows or, um, you know, when we were counting one or two people and money was tight and a lot of people told me to give up on the dream. And I remember thinking a couple of things and, and at one, I just felt very fulfilled. I felt very, I felt very happy. I had accomplished a dream. And one of the things I thought I remember thinking was we did it. Me and my team, we worked hard. We put the effort in, we defied the odds and on our own shoulders with our own hands, we built something really special. It was, it was, and I want to emphasize the stealth in that, that we did it. It was us. We built it. It was almost in a, in spite of the naysayers or anyone that would have detracted that from me, in spite of them, we built this with our own sheer willpower, really. It's kind of, that was kind of the mentality. There might've been shreds of gratefulness and thankfulness, but uh, at the core of it, we, we built it ourselves. That was the mentality. And I was, I was happy with that. So you built it and we built it and uh, we are enjoying it. And we have 10 acres and a gorgeous house and a beautiful pool and life is good and the kids are healthy. And it is all about to change in a mighty way as, you know, this is life. It just, it happens. June 4th, 2019, um, you're just out playing with your kids, man. It's an ordinary day. Would you walk us through that night? Yeah, it was about about a little after 7 p.m. in Texas on June 4th. And it was, the grass was green and the sky was blue and the clouds are puffy and white. It's, it's nice in Texas. It's, it's warm where you could be barefoot, but you're, um, it hasn't gotten to the ridiculous heat yet. And so it's, it's tolerable. I was leaving the next day to go to award show and then back to tour, summer tour, festivals, fairs, and the kids got bathed and they, they'd eaten and bathed and they were in their PJs. And London said she had been working on a uh, gymnastics routine and she was seven at the time. And she asked me to go outside with her to, so she could show me this routine she built. Mm. I said, yeah. So we go outside and this is just typical her. She like had coordinated this entire dance routine, you know, and it involved handstands and flips and you know all this stuff in the grass the boys follow us out there amber is taking a shower and she's kind of getting ready for the nighttime routine getting ready to put everybody down so she's inside i think she was kind of reading and taking a shower the boys follow us outside and as i'm doing the gymnastics routine with london the boys go pick up these water guns and they start chasing each other around with the water guns and there was a, a little water toy that that had these little plastic boats floating around in it. It was, it was like a little um, reservoir of water. So they were filling up their water until that ran out and chasing each other around. This was just normal, like the most normal. Totally. It's, it sounds funny even to describe a, an evening that's just so ordinary. But I remember thinking, as I was out there in the, playing gymnastics, I remember thinking, wow, take a breath for a second, you know? It kind of goes back to what I said about London. Be present. Be present with her because she's growing up. 
And she's not always going to say, daddy, come, let's do this gymnastics routine. She's going to get busy one day. She's going to be a teenager before we know it. Soak in this moment because it won't last forever. Like things are good. And I, I was doing, I remember holding her ankles as she was doing like a one-handed handstand. And I suddenly thought, now it's quiet. The boys were once running around in circles, chasing each other with a water gun. Now it's quiet. And that's not good when you have a three-year-old because three-year-olds are always loud. And so I thought, well, where is River? And I, I looked behind me and there's our pool and it's inside a, a gated, locked pool. I looked over my left shoulder and this is about 20 paces away from me. And I see his little body floating face down. And that, that image, I just, I, I still can, right now I could see that image. And it seems like um, a dream, a strange dream, a nightmarish dream that that's not possible. He, first of all, how did he get in there? And he's in his pajamas. That's not possible. And he was in the middle. You know, it wasn't like over by the, it was in the middle. And I ran and I ran through, slapped my hand on the gate and, and it flung open and I rushed into the water and I was expecting, fully expecting to grab him and he would be coughing and scared and I would calm him down. And then I would say, buddy, you know, you can't be doing this. Why, how did you get in here? How did you learn to open the gate? Um, but that's not what, what happened at all. He, he, instead, he was lifeless and cold and um, his limbs were flimsy like a rag doll. It was, it was horrifying. Um, his eyes were open and rolling around completely lifeless. And London was with me. She screamed. She, she didn't see exactly what I saw until, until she didn't know why I ran into the pool. She it, it hadn't computed with her seven-year-old brain yet. But I went in there and I didn't have my phone. And I said, go grab mom. And I pulled River out and laid him on the, laid him in my arms on the ground. And I just, I thought, well, I have to do CPR. It's, that's the only thing I know to do, but I didn't know how to do it. Yeah. Just besides what, maybe what I'd seen in movies. So I started CPR and I thought, I think I compress his chest, I think, and I pump it, but not too hard because it, you, you don't want to hurt him. But does that really matter? I don't know. And I remember, I remember his head kind of hit the, the concrete a little bit on the back and I thought, oh no, don't hit your head. But I don't know if that matters either. And London uh, went and got Amber, Amber ran out, but she, London didn't tell her what it was about. So she didn't have my phone either. Go get my phone. So she came out, kind of hit the brakes and went back in, got the phone, was on 911 by the time she got to me. And then the dispatch could start walking me through yeah. more specifically how to do CPR. All of this, I'm just thinking, I, it is the most helpless I've ever felt. So helpless that a part of me just thought, well, just give up because there's nothing you can do. Mm. This is over. This is over. What are you doing? You don't even know CPR. The, the dispatch is, they're 10 minutes away. You live in the country. They're yeah. 10 minutes away. 
so she walked me through that and then amber and i started taking turns and occasionally river would would cough but it was more just his chest cavity was full of water and so the water would kind of cough up from the pressure of our 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 hands and it, it gave us the the appearance of life but it wasn't um they uh emergency services arrived and london and it's just wild to thinking back on some of these memories as i wrote the book i remembered more and more details and as we talked with amber together but i remember london ran out there and directed them to the backyard which is just for a seven-year-old girl to to do that uh, it's unbelievable the strength so she kind of gave them the this way come this way and they all ran into the backyard and immediately took me away and it was i was so in such in shock i don't even remember what i was doing or saying but they pulled me away and pulled me into the house where then the police took over and tried to calm me down and just started asking just monotonous robotic questions you know with their pen and paper tell us what happened and what were you doing and i'm just wondering like are they getting his heartbeat back you know, just are they getting his heartbeat back? I, I didn't really want to talk about anything else. And then somebody came over and said they did. They got his heartbeat back um, with the electric shock. But they're putting him in the ambulance and he's very sick and they're going to be taking him to the hospital. And I said, can I go? And some of the officers said, no, this is a crime scene. <laughs> like, what? there's all just these strange things that just are just you cannot comprehend in the in the moment itself but one officer it was a female she said follow him get in your truck and go get out of here we'll handle everything we'll lock up your house and i just said thank you thank you and we ran and i was you know completely wet but i remember grabbing some boots on the way some lace-up boots and no socks and threw them in the car and we all went and chased the ambulance down the highway. Dude, my heart is in my throat. And if uh, you're listening to my voice and yours is not, then uh, check your pulse. Mm. So your little guy, his heartbeat has returned and you have hope. Yeah. Yeah. When, when does that hope begin to fade? I remember chasing that ambulance down the, the highway and all of a sudden we ran into a, a monsoon rain i mean unbelievable just out of nowhere i just had talk, talked about how pretty the blue sky was it just turned into a tremendous downpour so our 80 mile an hour chase you got went down to about 50 miles an hour in the left lane with my hazards on and that really that rain um that slowed me down i think that kind of gave me a chance to really think about reflect on what in the world is going on? Here we are in the car with two kids, not three, and Amber, and everyone is trying to talk and trying to kind of recount. And we're feeling we're feeling hope that they got the heartbeat back. But it wasn't until we got to the hospital and saw him with all his tubes down his his nose and throat. And we were there probably 15 minutes. And they said, we're packing up and we're going to put him in another ambulance and transfer him to another hospital because we're not getting any brain activity. And I just thought, uh-oh, the hope was starting to go away. We got in the car again 
chased another ambulance to another hospital. And that ride, I broke down and mm. sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And uh, Amber put her hand on me and was, and I, that was the first time I had been like focused and in shock and very articulate until that second car ride, I broke down. That, that's when we went to the children's hospital. And by the time we got there, they had already, we parked and they already had him uh, in the PICU. And he was completely, by that point, he was, um, his color had returned. His, he looked healthy. He looked alive and um, he was on a breathing machine, heart beating. And the nurse told us at that point, he is very, very sick. And it, it's, it's a long road to recovery, but of course there's a chance. And so I, that's when I thought, okay, there, the hope started returning again. So it was, it was, it was a roller coaster, really. Eventually, within a day, you learn that um, although his color has returned and although his little heart is beating, his brain activity is not. And so you, you, you've lost your little boy. And yeah. as a father of three and this little boy, everything you write and say about him is as alive as anybody you've ever met is uh, the river was different mm-hmm. and even more vibrant than the rest. So um, you're learning that this little boy will no longer come home with you. Hmm. what's it like to um to know that this vibrant young man your baby uh isn't coming home uh it's it's truly um it's something i could not comprehend the doctor told us um and we could see clearly on the monitor there was a you know the brain the brain monitor that all the all the little sticker sticky things with the with the cables were all coming off of his head and and so we could see the monitor and it was just static it was like nothing going on in his brain nothing cognitive at all was like a fm station on the left hand of the dial just nothing and it's hard to see that but look at him and he looks good he looks good and the doctor told us uh, there's no chance. And I said, what does no chance mean? And he said, zero, absolutely zero chance. And I said, well, we'd like a second opinion. <laughs> you know? He said, absolutely, absolutely. So they brought a team in. They brought a team that did a separate research on it. And the team came in after about an hour and said the same thing. So then... I went back to the bed and looked at him again and kissed his little forehead again. But this time I lifted his eyelids because I wanted to see his, his brown eyes. And it wasn't until I lifted his eyelids and I saw his eyes and he was gone. Hmm. They looked like marbles. They looked like it looked like a doll. It's very interesting that the soul has a, has life in the eyes. And when the soul is gone, the eyes don't look like humans anymore. Even though his color was there, his heart was beating, you know, I looked at Amber and I said, oh, he's, he's not here. Yeah. So that's when I knew, that's when I knew um, we could now move forward with whatever the next step was because he's not here. It, it wasn't worth fighting anymore. 
Yeah. There's just so much here, man. I mean, you've got conversations coming up next. Like, would you like to become a donor family? Mm. Um, it's a, it's a question you can't fathom ever being asked about your own kid. Yeah. So now it's in front of you. Uh, how do you even weigh that option? Yeah. So what's crazy is they didn't ask it. Amber suggested it. Mm. And to this day, she doesn't really know why that came to her. She doesn't feel like that could have been anything she could have possibly said, but she said, I want to donate his organs to the whole team. And it even caught me off guard. She, we hadn't, we hadn't even discussed it. And she said, he's perfect. Look at him. He's got all these body parts that are functioning perfectly, except for his brain. We should use them, use them all, use them all for someone. And the doctors, although grateful at the same time, were a, a, a bit, uh, I don't know if the frustrated is the right word, but they were a bit discouraged in, in, in the way that now it was going to take another 24 hours to find appropriate recipients that matched his organs and that would just prolong the grief of everyone around so that's the new process we started and like you said how do you even you can't begin to comprehend that just a few hours ago you're you were playing it feeding um, macaroni and cheese to your very vibrant three-year-old son and now you're thinking about who is the right recipient to take his organs? That's just not, you can't comprehend it. So I can't even begin to explain because my brain, your brain, the human brain just protects itself really. And that's what shock is. That's what it numbs itself um, so that you can't even begin to comprehend it. Granger, if you can't comprehend it and your sweet wife can't comprehend it, eventually you've got to move forward and tell a five-year-old and a seven-year-old that their little siblings not coming home with them today or ever again. Yeah. Take me through that conversation. Everything from that point on was it turned into, we can't do three steps ahead. We can only do the next step. And so, I mean, it's so basic that it would be, well, the next step is we pack up this hospital room and we get the flowers and the, the cards and we, okay, got it. Okay. What's the next step? Next step is we walk down the hall to the car in the parking lot. Okay. Got it. I remember that. I remember all these moments. Cause there was like, all of a sudden life just compartmentalizes to steps. That's all it is at that point. There is no planning. There is no future. There is no, what are we doing next week? There is no funeral thoughts or it's just, okay, we're at the car. Now what do we do? We take the key and we put it in the ignition and we start it up and we start heading towards home. So it, when we were on the highway home, we started talking about um, when we get home, the next step is as soon as we get there, as soon as we open the door, we're going to take Lincoln and London and we're going to walk them out to, the, to a nice little bench out in the woods before we do anything else that's what we're going to do. So. That was the next step. And when we pulled up, the kids had written in chalk on the driveway, welcome home river with balloons. They didn't know, they didn't know. So 
we opened the door and they said, where is he? Where's River? We didn't answer. And then the, their tone, remember London's tone changed and she said, daddy, where is he? And I said, let's take a walk. Let's take a walk. So we went to the woods and we sat down on a bench and Amber and I had agreed we would get right to it. So I said, River died. He didn't make it. His He didn't have oxygen and it was too long for his little brain to go without oxygen. And it got really sick to the point of he couldn't make it anymore. London immediately started crying and Lincoln just started a blank stare out into the woods thinking about his little buddy. And that was, that was, uh, that was a, that was a rough moment. Hmm. I'm going to quote you from the book that deeply moved me. You wrote, I had no idea how to deal with this kind of pain. It broke into my world like a thief and stole my joy, my passion for life, my sanity, and replaced it with something far more sinister guilt. Hmm. Yeah. What was the guilt you were feeling? So it didn't take long uh, being home. It didn't take long to have a couple nights to reflect on the whole situation and go, okay. So I was in the backyard. Amber was taking a shower. That puts me responsible. Two kids playing water gun fight. We have a swimming pool and a three-year-old. Yeah, that's on me. That's on me. He would be alive if I had been a better father. The guilt immediately sunk in. And although it hadn't really been discussed in the early days of after that, um, I think a lot of people were kind of anticipating that might happen to me. So they started saying things like, just want you to know that we support you and your family and we know you're a good father. Mm. You know, same thing like planting the seed. You're a good father just in case you start to think that you're not. Oh, I was already ahead of them on that, you know? So yeah, the guilt was, um, guilt might've been my biggest adversary through this process, yeah. And you fill that hole with a whole lot of things. Part of it is, let's go back to work, man. You know, I, I think it's three weeks after the death of your three-year-old baby in your backyard pool, yeah. You're back on stage with a guitar in your hand singing. Yeah. And um, for the cynics in the room, they might be thinking, dude, what's wrong with this guy? Like, uh, you know, he, be, be by your wife, man. Take care of those kids. Yeah. And what they don't recognize is grief shows up in a whole lot of ways, man. And you try to cover up and mask that in a whole lot of ways, the best ways that you know how. And for you, it's trying to return to some semblance of ordinary. Yeah. For that first performance, what's it like? for you being on stage with a guitar in your hand, ready to say and sing those first words. Yeah, so we're, we're looking at a calendar and eventually after, after the funeral, we return home, uh, the, the visitors, the family members start going back home. Yeah. Say we're 10, 11 days after we lost him. It's like, okay, we're looking at a calendar and the, eventually the conversation has to come up how many more of these dates that are booked are we going to call and cancel? It's an honest question. And it has to be addressed at some point, regardless of respect or disrespect. Hey, Granger, um, what about the so-and-so county fair in Lincoln, Nebraska? 
What what about uh, Des Moines, Iowa on the 17th, the 8th? When do you want to, how far out do you want to cancel these things? Okay. So we look at it and we go, probably two weeks. Let's do, let's start back up in two weeks. That sounds right. Can't go too long. I mean, because I've got everyone on salary, you know, yeah. like we're going to eventually have to look at, look at the, uh, the savings account for the company and go, well, that's just, this is like a faucet that's, you know, the, the drains out in the bathtub and, and the faucets on and everything's just going straight down the drain. So eventually we got to figure out a way to plug this hole again. And that would be to get back out on the road. So there's that there yeah. was, uh, I wanted everything just to get out of that house, get me away from the swimming pool. You know, I can't wake up and look out of the window and there's that swimming pool. All I see is river floating in it. And then the, the third thing was maybe I need a distraction. Maybe it just, maybe getting on the road and traveling, being back on the tour bus, playing music would be a good distraction. I didn't know. Those were just guesses, guesses of, from a man that didn't know much at that time. So that's what we did. And, and I remember going on, I mean, just numb as can be going on stage those first few shows. I had to, I did have the family with me. Um, because I wasn't going to leave them at home by themselves, but I just was embarrassed. I think that's a good word for it. I was very embarrassed to walk out on stage in front of people, shame, very ashamed that I was working for one, that I was a father who lost a son, who, who lost out on the one thing that any father is supposed to do, and that's just keep them alive till they're 18. Well, I failed at that. So I was just, I was a, a very ashamed failure that felt guilty and embarrassed. That was all, that was all what I was feeling those first few shows. And we could spend a lot of time on those shows and we could talk about July 19th when you're with Garth Brooks in front of 86,000 and how there was no joy <laughs> in your heart. How could there be? We could talk about uh, selling the forever home. Um, but I, I think I just want to talk about masking that pain the best you could with medicating it. Mm. You know, you're, you're dealing with the anxiety, you're dealing with the stress, you're dealing with a ton of online trolls. I, I, I can't fathom how someone can type something evil to a man who's grieving the loss of his son. But they did, and they did in droves. So you're taking heat now from folks that said, where were you? Who have mm. no idea where you were and uh, the pain that you're feeling. Yeah. So you start self-medicating. When, when did you realize this isn't just to fall asleep. This is now a real problem. Yeah, I was dealing with PTSD. I was dealing with what I call in the book, I uh, call the slideshow. And it was a knee jerk brain loop that I would enter in on a whim, unanticipated, it could happen in the middle of the night. It could happen just in the middle of a conversation with someone during the day. But the, the, the brain loop was a series of, I call it the slideshow because it's like a series of quick images and they move in progression. And it's like rivers in the pool. And then I see his, his lifeless eyes open, rolling around in this limpless, limpy body. And then I see, Amber running up to me and I see London scream. I see the, the 
monsoon in the car, of the car as I'm driving to the hospital. I see the doctor. I see his face as he tells me there's zero chance. I see the funeral. Um, just these little moments, and they could be out of order. They could start at a, could start at the funeral, or could start at the uh, at the pool. But but they would loop, and I couldn't stop it. And it would torment me over and over and over. So it ended up where I just wasn't sleeping. I was just shell shocked. It was like a I was like a prisoner of this, and it was this weird thing. And I'm I think you know in hindsight, I look back on it, and I go. I think that's a way that the human brain, when it comes up at odds with something that's so incomprehensible, it tries to make sense of it by replaying it to find the missing link. So it's like it's coming up with it's a computer that's coming up with an error message. And so it searches again to try to find the link so that it completes the loop and it could put it away and you could move on. But in something like this, which that's so traumatic. The brain can't find it. And so it just keeps replaying it to make sense of it. And I was, I was at a point where I was just needing any kind of mercy in that situation. And I was, I'd lean in, I'd leaned in on self-help so much in the past that wasn't working. Like trying to get restful sleep or getting up early or meditating more or getting more into my devotional reading or all, all the things you know, that I had the list for that wasn't working. That's when someone finally in the band said, have you ever thought about marijuana? Because that's really becoming a popular thing with PTSD or aches and pains or back, back problems. It's really becoming a good thing and it could help you sleep. And I thought, well, I've never really associated with that kind of thing, but I'm willing to try anything. Like, let me try it. And so the first time I tried it, I tried a, a, a vape pen that we got in Denver. And you put oil in the little canister and you put it in this pen and it heats up. And I tried it at night. It was amazing. I was able to not think about anything. It just made my, my mind just kind of blank. I really, really didn't think or care or know anything. I just laid in my bed and relaxed. And that's when I thought, oh, this is, this is great. But the problem with it being great was then I thought, man, if it's so great at night, then I should probably do it sometimes in the day because the slideshow also happens in the day. And then I thought, well, but it also happens at home. So I should buy a second one to take home. And then I would just do, I was doing it as a precautionary measure all the time, just in case but there was one moment when I was camping with the kids and. I forgot it and I was in the tent camping and I suddenly thought about, oh, I'm unprotected from the slideshow. And I got so scared that I ran a quarter of a mile to, to our bus that was parked nearby to grab the pen. And that's when I just thought, oh, you are a loser. You are a loser. You really are a bad dad. How, how pathetic are you? What, how long is this going to last? Years? You're going to do... You're just going to medicate yourself for years. Is that going to be the fix to this? So that just added to the shame that was already compiling. And this culminates. I mean, at some point, you, you know, it's coming. Uh, this culminates in a night where you're out with your bandmates and uh, you've been well served, man. 
and the mm. slideshow is is popping up again. Would you walk us through that night and and what happened? Yeah, we we it was in December and we had a really good night. We had a good a good show, and I felt pretty normal for the first time in six seven months. Uh, I'd been to therapy with Amber. We'd worked through that. Um, I'd have highs and lows, but you know what? I felt pretty good that night, and it felt good to feel good again. And I got off the stage and some of the guys said, Hey man, let's celebrate. There's a bar right next to the bus, a little hole in the wall. No one knows about it. There won't be any fans. It's just us, just a quiet spot. Let's go like the old days and just have a few drinks. And I thought, yes, I would love that. Sounds like the most normal thing I've done in a long time. Just sit on a bar stool and tell some stories and sip a whiskey or two and then go back to sleep. That sounds great. So we did and, and had some good conversations, had some good laughs, had four, five, six drinks, something like that. And I walked outside and that crisp, cool air and I, in December and I walked to the bus and I realized I was not walking straight. I was a little tipsy, you know, and I thought, man, I've had, I've had quite more than I thought, more drinks than I thought. I got on the bus and I thought, in fact, man, I feel drunk. And then I thought, that's the first time you've been drunk since you lost River. And then I thought, how's that going to hold up to the slideshow? And I thought, oh no. So I grabbed that for that weed pen and I inhaled. And right when I inhaled, the slideshow kicked on. And I thought, oh no, this, this, the trusty weed pen is not working. And then I just absolutely panicked and I thought the one thing I could rely on <laughs> this weed pen is now failing me and now the slideshow is back after a good night it's back with a vengeance I guess it's never going to go away I guess I will live with this the rest of my life I that compiled and compiled and I panicked and I had a complete nervous breakdown and started bawling right there in, in the back of my bus that was that's what led to the darkest night ever for me. You contemplated taking your own life. Yeah. You uh, even had a personal firearm in your possession that you contemplated using. What, what kept you from taking your life? That is a great question because I felt in that moment that the only peace and rest I would have was if I took my own life. The only for sure way to end that slideshow once and for all was to end my life. That would do it. That would, that would do it. And that rest, eh, it might be better than what I'm dealing with now, whatever that might be. But in, the, in that moment, which seemed like an eternity, in the worst night of my life, with that trigger in my finger. It was the face of Lincoln in London that came up to, into my head. By the grace of God, their face came into my mind. And upon seeing them, I reacted to that by saying, my God, my God, Jesus, save me. Save me. It's the first time I had cried out in a way of complete surrender. And I dropped the firearm 
and dropped down to the floor and the slideshow stopped. You waited not days or weeks or months, but more than a year to tell your bride about that moment, about that dark night, about this transformational inflection point in your journey. Mm -hmm. Why? She's your best friend, mm -hmm. man. She's your advocate. She's for you and she's bearing this weight with you. Why'd you, why'd you wait so long to tell her? Well, after that, I, I went on a, a, a journey, to say the least. I went on a trek to find out neurologically, psychologically, emotionally, why I needed a rational reason why I had tried everything. And that night, I called out to Jesus. And then the slideshow went away. What was it about this? And because I considered myself a Christian before that. So what was, what was it about that surrender that actually stopped the, the endless loop in my mind? Through that journey, through that search, which I feel like I, I tried my best in the book to, to practically lay out that that's that journey and that search after that darkest night. That journey ended with a complete understanding of what happened, which I call the rebirth in the book. Um, so I, I'm trying to answer your question in a way where I'm saying, because that solution, that, that solution came to me and, and the problem of the darkest night was resolved, I thought, why burden Amber with this information mm. when I, I am now healed? There's not going to be another one of those nights. I'm confident of that. God has saved me and redeemed me and restored me and ransomed me in a way more powerful than I could have ever done myself. Going back to the conversation we had about my music and when I thought, I did it. I built it. I, I conquered. Our team, out of hard work, out of diligence, we did it. Now. I had completely turned 180 to where I was surrendered. I had given completely given everything to him. So through that, I thought I'm not going to burden Amber with this information because it would only rekindle or possibly bring up something that we, sh we that is dead and buried until <laughs> decided to write the book. And it became a big moment in the book. And I then I needed to tell her that. Your first readers are the people who know you. Some of them have your last name. <laughs> Many of them were unaware of this until they read it. I think it's chapter seven. This thing shows yep. up. Dude, how, how surprised were your best friends that they were unaware of this darkest night and how close they came to not only losing Riv, but losing Riv's dad? Yeah, if that, and I'm still in the middle of that right now. You know, John, I, the book has only been out as we as we're talking here today. It's only been out a little over a week, and so I'm still getting that reaction. And so, in six front, six months from now, perhaps I'll have a, a, a better data collected for for that answer. But I'm getting mixed results. One group of people will first of all. Let me start with this. First of all, I say, here's the book. Don't text me at chapter seven. Don't call me, call me after chapter eight, you know, 
don't jump to conclusions and, and rush to, to meet me without reading chapter eight. You got to go there first. Then the reaction, the mixed reaction is this. There's one group that says, I'm so sorry. I wasn't there for you. I had no idea it got that bad. I'm so sorry. And I will say to that, I'll say, thank you. But I'll take that as a first reaction. But what I, what I want as the second reaction is, and how great a God we have that saved you. That's the second reaction I need from you. And so some people go right there from the very beginning, and some people go the other way. But, but the point of the book really is not, oh, I'm so sorry, Granger, your darkest night. The point is, how great is our God that saved you in your worst moments? Yeah. So if I give away, I can't read every single word of every single chapter. I really encourage <laughs> folks to check out like a river. It is worthy. There's so many beautiful, tender moments, including the fact that you get another miracle in your life. You get miracle upon miracle, but one of them shows up bundled up in blue, uh, <laughs> named Maverick Beckham Smith. Talk about the name Maverick Beckham. How, how'd you choose that name for this little man? Yeah, Maverick uh, Beckham. Beckham is means home by the river. And Maverick has the three letters R-I-V in the name to honor his older brother. And the, the existence of Maverick is a miracle. How he got here, Amber had her tubes tied after the birth of River. So the, the fact that he's here, the fact that he is turning two this month in just a couple of weeks, the fact that he is just like River in so many ways, and he exists because River doesn't. And to lose Maverick would be gaining River, but to lose River would be mm. gaining Maverick. It, that, that, that just, I can't comprehend it. But I will say, once again, that what a great God we have that redeems and restores. And the book has the title, Like a River, and it carries River's name. But really, the star of the book is Maverick. I mean, the, the fact that the fact that he even exists is really <laughs> such a big part of the, of the book. Most often when someone goes through a tragedy like you and Amber went through, the marriage is over. It, it may not end the day you leave the hospital, but even if it goes on for the rest of your lives, it, it ended. It ended. What do you think has kept your marriage and your love and her love of you and your tenderness together? In every interview I've seen where the two of you are together, it's, dude, it's, it's your best work. Because when you don't have the strength to say the, the rest of the sentence, she'll finish it for you. And when she starts getting teary eyed, you'll put her arm on your, your hand on her leg and you'll finish it for her. And the, this partnership of doing life together, it is so clear on video. So what do you attribute that reconciliation, but also just that continued love? That is, it just starts with the grace of God, his mercy on our family in, in a way that I don't understand why. And so I'm not going to ask why. But aside from that, there's a couple ways to look at it because one way I could look at it in terms of we walked out to the, this little serenity garden at the hospital during the, the height of the hospital stay with River. We walked up to the Serenity Garden, and we knew the statistics. 
most couples don't make it. We knew that all the odds were against us to making it. And we looked at each other and we said, let's make a commitment to each other. We're not going to, this is not going to tear us apart. We know it's going to be hard. We're going to anticipate persecution. We're going to anticipate struggle. We're going to anticipate that we're going to go on different grief journeys and not always, that's not always going to intersect. So let's make a deal. Let's make a partnership right now that we're not going to let this break us up. So that's one. And then another way I could say it is I did lose her that day. I did. I, I read in my journal just the other day. I still keep a journal since those days. And I read one that was four years ago this month. And I said, I miss Amber. I lost her that day with River. So I know she lost me as well. So it, so there is a way of saying this answer where I could say, well, we lost each other and we're new now. Mm. <laughs> she has a new version of me and I have a new version of her. It's not necessarily better. I'm not going to say it's better, but it's, it's different. It's, it's a, a new version of me. Uh, I'm going to quote back something from your book. I want to ask you a final question and then stumble together through the Live Inspired 7. So the, the yeah. quote is, true healing is connected with our willingness to run through the pain, not away from it. Hmm. Those are your yeah. words. Tell me what they mean. Yeah, so surrender is a big theme of this book. Surrendering to God. But that word itself sounds passive. It sounds like retreat, but I have found that surrender itself is very active and it is a forward move for us. It takes effort to surrender, not in a way that we earn anything, but it takes effort to move towards our savior in a way of complete release. So a surrendering move would be a position of, I am no longer in authority of my life. So I give it to you. And that takes a, a forward motion effort. In fact, faith is most accurately used as a verb, not a noun. Mm -hmm. Faith requires action. It requires something that is daily. It's something that we do. Not, not something that it is, it's acquired and kept. And so the reason I say that is because I have learned through this that humans, whether I, it's me or any, someone else I'm talking to, we have a tendency to become a recluse and to get stuck and to let grief or guilt or, or, or any of these very natural occurring things happen to us. We have a tendency to let that turn into self-deprecation, which then manifests itself into depression. And when that sets in, you're now past the original event of trauma. And now you're just adding, you're piling it onto yourself and you're stuck and your wheels are spinning and you're in the mud and there's no getting out of it. So when you're stuck, it takes an active effort to move forward. And that is the act of surrender. So it's moving through the fire. That's where the true healing is because you could stay for a long time in the fire and humans are very resilient. We could stay there for a long time, but we, we will not be healed until we make an active decision 
to move forward. You don't have to move on. You don't have to forget. You don't have to stop loving, but you can move forward. We have to do that. And beautifully said, you have, and I believe your brother is the one that gave it to you, an expression, live like Riv. Live yeah. like Riv. Tell our listeners who are struggling in relationships or doubt or faith, or they're struggling with a regret or a diagnosis or a million different things that we all walk into this podcast with. We're in the middle of the fire right now. Many of us are feeling that. What does it mean to live like Riv and how can we live a little bit more like Riv in our lives? Yeah, well, you remember when we were at the hospital and everything got compartmentalized to one moment at a time. And I think that's something to say for, for living life more like that. Now, we should be responsibly planners. We should be responsibly looking after our, our future appropriately, you know, of course. But there is something to say for living in the moment as well, being, staying present with what we have for us today. Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough troubles of its own. And so River <laughs> didn't plan anything. He didn't <laughs> think about his future at all. He was only barefoot. He was only running around like a wild man. He was only living in the moment. For a little over a thousand days, he did that. And if we could all just live a little bit more like Riv, where we are so in the moment, whether that's pain, it could be pain. Yeah, Living in the moment of the pain instead of trying to live past it because you're going to deal with it at some point. So living it out, if it's grief, grieve. If it's mourning, mourn. If you're crying, cry it out. If you're happy, shout for joy. But whatever you do, do it right now in this moment. Jesus says, whoever would come after me, take up his cross and follow me. That is active. That is an active surrender. We move forward, we take up our cross, deny ourselves and follow. That's the surrender that we need to do that, that would be living like Riv. Well, Granger Smith, as we get ready to live like Riv, we have seven questions that we wrap every podcast with. So I'm going to raise the white flag of surrender with you actively. It's a verb, man. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Seven questions, man. Number one, what's been the best book, the most influential book you've ever read? And you're going to say, besides the Bible, right? If you say the Bible, you can cheat and say the Bible. I'll ask you for a specific book within it. I'm going to say the Bible. Yeah. And then within that, there's there's a couple, couple chapters, a few books written yeah. by different authors. Is there one specific that you turn to? If I had one thing that I could say, hey, read this one book out of the Bible, I would say the book of Romans. And I told my brother Parker, I, at one point when we were kind of dealing with this together, I said, Read the book of Romans. It is the best self-help book ever written. Thank you. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little kid growing up outside Dallas that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Mm. There was just a freedom that, that kids have. The freedom of not worrying about anything, but uh, when the sun goes down and it's time to go back home. Riding, riding my bikes with my friends, that kind of freedom is, uh, I don't have that anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't have that kind of freedom. I have schedules and calendars now. <laughs> yeah. You and I are recording this on a Tuesday and uh, last week I was on vacation with my family and for eight days, 
I did not own a pair of shoes or a cell phone. And that freedom you had as a kid, I had as an adult last week. And <laughs> what a gift, man, just to be free, like Riv, live like Riv. Amazing. If you could sit on a bench and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to? I, I want to, I'm going to go with my dad on this one. I wish I could have dad. I wish I could tell him about these last five years. Yeah. If your home caught fire and all living things are out and you have an opportunity of running in and grabbing one item, what's the one thing you would grab? <laughs> oh, I'm going to grab the Bible that I read during those transformative years for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm going to grab. What's the best advice that that book, your dad, Riv, Amber, or anybody else ever gave you? So the best advice you've ever received is? I dedicated a whole chapter to dad in this book because it mattered to me enough to correlate his story into mine to better understand where I came from. But, but dad was always striving to be a man of integrity. And that still sticks with me. And I, I am not, I, I, I'm not even going to come close to claiming that I am that, that man. But I sure strive that I, I, I point my boat in that direction. And I think if I can, and I had to do this recently, I had to do, I had to, I came to this crossroad just a few days ago where we come to a decision in life where you can go right. And that's the morally correct path, or we can go left and it's compromising your morals, but it might lead to something more successful. I'm going to choose the morally correct path the path that's better to achieve integrity and as much money as we might lose or friends or admiration or whatever it might be choosing the immoral path. I believe I'm convinced that you collect those turns towards the moral path more often and you'll have a more fulfilling life. What would you tell yourself at age 20? If you could go back in time, what, 23 years or so, and whisper a little bit of wisdom your way, what would you say? <laughs> I'd say, buddy, you're doing just fine. <laughs> oh, by the way, you're not in control. <laughs> Granger Smith, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? <laughs> these questions, John, these are hard. These are like prepare for a month to get uh, appropriate answers to these kind of questions. And you're asking in five seconds. Um, but I'll give you a moment to think about that. My first guest ever, almost 600 episodes ago was my mom. And as I'm guiding her through these seven questions, she's given me the death stare. And this is before we started doing the videos, but she's looking <laughs> at me like, why would my own son not have told me he's going to be asking me these impossible questions? So you're not the first to uh, look at me with, with anger, Granger. I would say only one life soon will pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. Granger Smith, singer, songwriter, best-selling author, father of four, husband of one, great leader, great example, beautiful son. Thank you for shining and reflecting that light. It has made a mighty difference in my life, and I'm positive it's going to make a big difference in the lives of those tuning into your voice going forward. Mm. Thank you, brother. I feel the same way about you.
my friends, that is Granger Smith. He is the author of a book you should check out called Like a River. My name is John O'Leary, and today is our day. What a gift. Live inspired. I loved our conversation around the word surrender and how while it may sound passive and weak, it is in fact a verb. It's very active. The quote Granger and I discussed from his book was this. True healing is connected with our willingness to run through the pain, not away from it. In other words, it takes effort to surrender, not in a way that we earn anything, but it takes effort to move toward a complete release, letting go. My friends, it's easy to get stuck in grief or guilt and become a recluse to disappear and do it all by yourself. And yet by making the active decision to move forward together, we have an opportunity to heal together. What part of today's conversation will you be thinking of long after this episode stops? I want you to think about that for a moment. I want you to think about it. And not only do I want you to think about it, I want to hear about it. We'll be talking about it over at the Live Inspired Together community site. It is our free, no cost, members only virtual community. It's a place you can access exclusive inspirational content, connect with me and with other awesome individuals, attend virtual gatherings, find curated opportunities to serve, and yes, continued podcast conversations. Live Inspired Together is designed to help you, yes, you, embrace the power of perspective, the gifts you already possess, and the truth that the best days are yet to come. And you can register with me at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash together. If you enjoyed this episode, you'll love the conversation that I had with my buddy Stephen Curtis Chapman. In a career spanning more than three decades, Chapman is the most awarded artist in Christian music history, selling more than 11 million records, earning five Grammy Awards, and receiving a record-breaking 58 Golden Dove trophies. You can hear Stephen share the inspirational stories behind his music, how his family has found comfort after his daughter's tragic death, and the faith he instills in God. It is uplifting. It is a timely conversation that will remind you the best of your days do indeed remain in front of you. You can listen to that anywhere you pulled on your podcast, including episode 252, which is the direct link in. Well, family, friends, leaders, and servants, my name is John O'Leary. I appreciate you jumping into the river again with us today to rejoice in the fact that no, life is not easy, but the foundation is good. The headwinds may be real, but the best is yet to come. So for this time, and until next time, this is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift. Live inspired. Helians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at keelycompanies.com.